This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. And I'm Dave DeBoat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget I. Paul Valenza. Coming up later, Dave Debo will be speaking with Sidney Perkins, Vice President of the Board of Directors of St. Luke's Mission of Mercy, as she talks about her experience growing up in one of Buffalo's poorest neighborhoods. But first, I am joined by Will Green, Regional Office Director for New York State Network for Youth Success and Canisius College Director of the Center of Urban Education. Will, thank you for joining us today. You've been out in the community. Um, it's been a month, a little over a month now. How, how are people? How are things? So thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so being in the community for me, a lot of it means uh, being in the spaces that the work is being done. So it is promising to see the support that the community has had. Um, I think everybody kind of went to work in the fields that I work in, education and after school programming. You have a lot of folks who are frontline workers. And essentially, as soon as the tragedy happened, they just jumped right into action. And then with so many resources being pumped into the community, um, you needed people to deliver those resources. You needed people to set up the logistics of how to deliver those resources. And I would say in this last month, folks have gotten to work. Um, I'm a little wary of the busyness of it all because I know a trauma response is to stay busy and you're not really processing what has happened. So in the work that I do and in the conversations that I'm having with everyday folks, I'm really trying to encourage them to pay special attention to how they feel about what has happened as they continue to be busy because there is so much work to do. It's important. Self-care is important, um, certainly. And then once all of that busyness goes away, you're left with yourself. And if you haven't dealt with some of that or any of that, um, you're heading for what could potentially be a really difficult mental health time for you. And that translates into physical problems that you may start encountering. Um, I know that the county, at least, has said that they will keep mental health services available in the neighborhood for people, and that is is very promising. Um, other than the increased presence, um, and certainly the, the busyness and activity, um, what other changes have you seen? Uh, you know, so it, it is a lot of reactionary things. Um, 
And once again, so I don't want to say that I don't appreciate the support that has been given, but a lot of it certainly seems to be uh, a response in terms of sympathy as opposed to empathy. And it's like, oh, this terrible tragedy happened. What can we do immediately to make people feel better? Mm. You know, um, there's an interesting power dynamic at play that I think has contributed to the conditions to allow an incident like this to happen that is continuing on in our response to it. So I'm very interested to know who made the decision that the response should be to donate food and all of these other things, because we know that I'll just use that famous quote that somehow we seem to be forgetting about uh, in this time. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man a fish, you feed him for a lifetime. So right. what happens when all the groceries are gone and this building is opened up again, which there's another power dynamic there. <laughs> yes. What happens when all these things go away and the people in the community still have to deal with what happened and the lack of resources, the lack of power to affect their condition? You know, so it's just a very interesting dynamic that I'm observing. Let me check in with you personally. How are you, how are you doing? That's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I'm a native son of Buffalo, you know, I'm right. born and raised in East Buffalo, the east side of Buffalo. Went to Buffalo Public Schools, graduate of School 53, which is right around the corner from Jefferson and um, Ferry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember going to the Apollo Theater on school field trips. I remember going to the library that was on, excuse me, Utica Street right across from the plaza. So, you know, this incident, it hit me hard. You know, my father grew up in a house on Glenwood and my grandparents owned that house. I went to that house every day. Um, I know a lot of the people who still live in that community, Cold Springs community. Um, but I've also experienced my share of trauma. Mm. And growing up in the late 80s, early 90s on the east side of Buffalo, you know, it's a tough, difficult thing. Um, I've lost two brothers, Stephen Barney and Corey Green, to violence. You know, I've lost best friends to violence. As an educator, I've lost countless students to violence. So there's a certain, I would say, shell that you develop when it comes to trauma and violent trauma specifically. Um, and it makes for me, it makes me more pensive. You know, mm. think about how did we get here? How did these things happen? And then I go into action. So for me, it's a part of my life work to help address these issues and not just, you know, the reactionary things, but what can we do to prevent things like this from happening? So certainly I'm aware of my emotions just from those experiences before and going through that, keeping busy to not think about it and dealing with that ultimate, you know, reaction of, wow, this really happened. Right. And the sadness and the guilt and the anger and everything else you feel. I still have those feelings now, but now because of my experiences, I would say my approach or at least my ability to handle them is a lot different from before. There's a certain numbness that happens when you are continuously and repeatedly um, exposed to trauma. 
Uh, and that is part then of the community trauma response, because you're talking about a community that has been victimized via several means, certainly, you know, not specifically a, a shooting of this type, but shootings nonetheless, violence nonetheless, um, you know, police action nonetheless, economic action nonetheless. And so all of that really informs the response that the neighborhood has, and it leaves that impression on youth, um, which, you know, you are the regional office director for youth success. So tell me about that and tell me what youth success looks like. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so, you know, the New York State Network for Youth Success is an out-of-school time advocacy agency, a not-for-profit. It's based out of Albany. I'm the regional director for Western New York. Um, so student success <laughs> signs all the things we're dealing with currently is students that are empowered, families that are empowered to make decisions about their future that have positive outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. To get them to think about their future in a way that presents itself in the form of making decisions about how they become educated, what they become educated on, and then what they do in their future to increase the value of their lives, their communities, and the entire city, the region, what have you, right? Right now, what is student success? And I'm going to go back to, I guess, this discussion that we're nibbling at in terms of trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. What does trauma do to you, right? We, we know when you're faced with trauma and even a history of trauma, uh, you get caught up in this permanent uh, fight, flight, and then they say flee or flock response, right? right. And what that does is it prevents your prefrontal cortex, I'm going to get a little scientific on you, but the executive part of our brain that makes executive decisions, we can't think straight when we're impacted by trauma. And this can continue on for years and years and years, specifically for when youth experience trauma at a young age and don't learn how to process it. So the goal right now, in my view, is to make sure that our educators, our staff in after school and out of school time programming are prepared to help support students in activating that executive functioning and thinking in their brain, even though they've experienced significant trauma. And really, it's helping them process this trauma so that they can then move forward into a successful future. So this is a, I mean, trauma has a physiological response in the body. It literally changes your DNA. Um, it changes cells and the way your brain operates. How, how do you help facilitate moving a, a child, a youth, if you will, out of that response into something that's, I wouldn't even say more positive, per se, but in a better direction. How, what does that look like? How do you do that? So, you know, how you combat those things that I'm talking about, um, fight, flight, or free, this um, hypervigilance, this overreaction to things that maybe someone who hasn't experienced trauma would look at him like, wow, why are you having such a reaction? And actually what it boils down to is safety. And how do you make people feel safe you build positive and supportive relationships 
Mm -hmm. Right. Positive and supportive relationships is the first key, because then in a positive and supportive relationship, let's say a child has a positive and supportive relationship with an adult at a school or in an after school program or in a community program, then that opens the door for deeper discussion and deeper connection about what are the things that trouble that child. It's great that we have mental health counselors coming into the area and they are accessible. But in my experience, in general, students aren't going to self-identify and say, hey, yeah, I want to run down and talk to the counselor. Right. Parents aren't going to self-identify like, yeah, you know, my kid was doing this at home and I think they should talk to the counselor. We know there are a lot of issues around that. But when we have highly qualified professionals who work at developing those positive and sustainable relationships with kids, those conversations will arise. We want to make sure that those adults have the skills and tools necessary to direct those conversations in a positive manner. And if possible, if necessary, provide the additional support of counseling from other areas. But we know the first point of contact is going to be through a trusting and caring relationship with an adult. It's my job to make sure that we have people that are going to be aware of that and they know what to do when it arises. How important is it for the youth to really identify a counselor or trusted person, a social worker who looks like them? It's extremely important. It's extremely important. And, you know, but to be honest, I think what we need are individuals who are culturally competent, because the reality is for all the children and students that we have, there are not enough of those people who look like us in those positions. So the first thing is we need to make sure that everyone in the field is culturally competent. All right. And then now you're going to get into this systems issue. Right. So it's great to say we need more but what do those systems look like that produce these counselors? Right. Once we start to look at those systems, then we understand the connection to the shooting. Right. There's a historical and systemic connection that is producing these results and producing individuals with the intent to harm people of color that also keep people of color away from these positions. So I don't want to talk about, oh, there aren't enough. What I want to talk about is why aren't there enough and what do we need to do to increase the people who look like us, people of color, in these positions. You are also the director for the Center of for Urban Education over at Canisius College. Um, talk to me about urban education, what that is <laughs> exactly. So I've been an educator. Um, I've been in education for almost 30 years um, and I've taught a diverse group of students from all different demographics, ages, background. I'm pretty sure religion, ethnicity, color. Right. Um, and make no mistake about it. Good teaching is good teaching. Period. <laughs> okay. Period. Period. And Period. But. To address some of the issues that we know are prevalent in education that disproportionately affect students of color, we have to focus on urban education because that's where the majority of students of color are. 
But good teaching is good teaching no matter where. My goal as a director for the Center for Urban Education is to take practices that are in areas where there's a high concentration of students of color, a high concentration of students in poverty, a high concentration of students who have been disenfranchised to take those practices and hold them up and show that these practices are best practices anywhere you go. So a quality educator in an urban environment is a quality educator in a suburban environment, is a quality educator in a rural environment. It's just all about how they approach it and how these educators in these spaces inform themselves about the communities in which they teach in. Talk to me about teaching history. Mm-hmm. No, no easy <laughs> subjects today. I mean, you know, here's the thing. Uh, there's schooling and there's education. And schooling is going to give you a certain set of skills. What I was led to believe as a child and my parents pumped into me, you go to school and then you go to college and then you get the diploma and then you get the job. Right. Right. But what I realized through that experience going to school 53, where I got a shout out school 53, the <laughs> five, three <laughs> uh, Nan Woods, big shout out, rest in peace, Nan Woods, black principal. We had black teachers. It was a wonderful experience. K through eight going to school 53. We valued education. I remember competing with my classmates or not even competing, just sharing. What did you get in this class? What did you get in that class? It was a competition. It was healthy competition. Mm-hmm. And then going from a school that was 99% African-American with African-American teachers and principals to then going to Hutch Tech and being a minority and then realizing what that meant, um, being treated differently and a young black male saying to myself at the age of 13, wow, why are they treating me like this? You know, right. um, so I'm sorry, I kind of lost track. What was that original question? Because I want to get to it because it's a good one. This is live, so um, it, it is. Um, why? Oh, the is history. It, yes, history. History. So history is important, and I got a smidgen of it at 53, but it was just enough to inform me about what my goal and purpose was as a young African American male. I really did not go deep into the history of Black people in America until I became a teacher and was confronted with issues in the classroom that I had no solutions for. And I was blessed to have mentor teachers. My first experience as a teacher was in an alternative school in Rochester, New York, and I co-taught. I was an English teacher, 7th through 12th grade. I co-taught with a 7th through 12th grade social studies teacher who was, his name was Mr. Williams. (laughs) Shout out to Mr. Williams in Rochester if he's still around. God bless him. He was a social studies teacher, Negro League baseball player. And then I also commuted back and forth from Buffalo to Rochester every day with my mentor, Akil Ajamu, who has been an educator his whole life. And they poured into me information about black history. They poured into me information about the history of education in America. They suggested books. And with five books that they may have suggested, you know, I'll read that book and go into the bibliography and find more books. And then I really learned more about the historical context of African-Americans in America and education. History provides the blueprint for how we move forward. 
mm-hmm. period, point blank. And I believe that there are too many people who are unaware of even recent history and the impact of decisions that have been made on where we are now. So how does racism and bias inform the education that is received in school currently, that students are, are learning currently? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to date myself, but back in the day, the first time you heard about Africans, they were being brought over as slaves. There, there was, they just apparently dropped out of the sky. So how does that inform as, as educators, the, the students, how does, how does that inform how they see themselves? So it's interesting, right? So how does sugar inform the taste of a cake <laughs> when you bake it? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it, 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 it's in there. Are you right? So it, I don't think that racism and bias is informing education. If we study the history of public education in America and how it came to be, we know that is a system based on separating the haves and the have nots. Traditionally, education was only for people who could afford it. And that means afford it with the finances or afford the time to go to school. My grandfather had an education up to the third grade. You know why? Because his father owned a farm and he needed him to work the farm, not go to school. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's interesting. You talk about slavery and we say, oh, yes, yeah, slaves were bought from Africa. It's the context. Mm-hmm. People were bought from Africa and enslaved. When you say it that way. It shows you the humanity and it shows you the historical context of who wrote the book. (laughs) History is written by the victors. Exactly. The lion hunter tells the story differently than the lion. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, What role does systemic racism play in the choices a student could make, would make, or should make? Because racism is baked into the culture of how we exist and interact daily, and because, look at this incident at Tops, because we have not successfully, as a country, addressed the atrocities of slavery, post-slavery, with Reconstruction, Jim Crow, uh, you know, lynchings, all of these things, all of these things up till now, because we have not adequately addressed them, what it does is it creates almost these conditions where folks can act upon it in the way that they feel they should, Mm. right? We need to collectively address the impact. We need to collectively look at each and every system and how it operates and scrub out inequity. And what that means is we need to acknowledge that there are different ways of doing things. As an educator, quite honestly, every few years, there is some type of incident to remind us how gross and ugly racism and the othering of humans is. And then we come together. We have these conversations. What must we do? What must we do? And, you know, when I was younger... Oh, oh, you want to know? Hey, we can do this. We can do this. And then the second time around, you didn't hear me that time. Here, we can do this. We can do that. Now, I'm quite straight up with it. (laughs) 
Now I'm quite like, well, you want more students of color in your school? Then you need to find out what intelligence truly is for people who do not look like you. You need to open your eyes to a new way of thinking. Because what we understand about intelligence is it's not a monolithic thing. Right. Intelligence has many different facets. And I think we've been unwilling, and I'm going to say we because we're all in this together. We've been unwilling to acknowledge the beauty and the gift that other people have because it doesn't come in a traditional package. It doesn't look like what one's traditional picture of that is and so then subsequently it it must be wrong or inaccurate right or it makes you feel a little strange so we had a conversation prior to me showing up i'm like well you know what should i wear and i was like well i want to represent the hip-hop culture so i'm going to dress the way i feel comfortable why do we need to have those conversations and discussions (laughs) that's a, a good question one can certainly say so so that one doesn't show up sans clothing to an interview because that might be inappropriate (laughs) well i agree we should wear clothes (laughs) helpful um let's talk about racist extremism what role do you think social media played or plays in the massacre so you know as an educator and as someone that, you know, I'm, I'm deeply connected to the lives of young people. I'm interested in the lives of young people. Um, I tell educators all the time, you know, this is the only profession. You get to touch the future. At some point in time, if you can connect with a youth, later on in life, they're going to bring up something that you taught them. You can live forever. So social media in general, the Internet in general, has created a space for youth in which adults have limited access. Mm. Um, some of the social media sites that, um, you know, this murderer was accessing are encrypted sites that no one can get into unless you give them an invite. So what it does is it creates a space for people. I told you we need to scrub out every inch of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives it a space to hide. It gives a space for racism to go. And now you connect with folks who have a similar thinking. There are no alternative viewpoints. Um, all it does is escalate the hate. And it becomes a space where you have no counter view. And that can take you in some very poor directions. So... I think the key thing is that in these spaces, anything can happen, especially if we're hiding from some of the realities of our situations in this country and how we got here. People are comfortable behind their keyboards, behind their phone screens. Uh, They often lack the courage uh, to actually face a person uh, and have a discussion about biases, about you know, inequity and equality. How do you start that conversation? I think you have to live it. I think we're in a position now where we can't separate and compartmentalize parts of our lives. As a black man and going through academia, working in academia, working in professional settings, I have to acknowledge the fact that I had to compartmentalize and store away certain aspects of who I was in these spaces. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that has created a situation where the expectation is that you show up with this version and you leave those things at home. I think the things that we've left at home would have been better served being put out in front for people to have to deal with and acknowledge so that we can come to some common ground, not saying, hey, I'm just going to leave this part of who I am somewhere right. else. So you don't have to deal with it to, I think, to make someone else comfortable. Yep. To feel comfortable. Yes. Um, would you be willing to have a conversation with a, a racist, a white supremacist, uh, um, you know, ultra right wing conservative who may see you as other already? What would you would you be willing to have the conversation one and two? What would you say to them to potentially change their mind? So I have to answer both of those questions from the viewpoint of an educator, right? Mm -hmm. If you ask a doctor, do they believe in the power of healing in medicine? A doctor is going to say, oh, yes, most definitely. We can solve or we can help heal people because we have this technology. As an educator, I believe in the transformative power of education. I believe in a transformative power of knowledge. I believe that we as human beings can continue to learn and grow with the right environment and the right opportunity. Um, in the work that I've done, <laughs> I've spoken to rooms of hundreds of people. Uh, I'm pretty sure there were some racists in there. <laughs> uh, and I'll be honest with you. I think the highest form of intelligence is sitting down at a table with someone who you disagree with and maybe someone who does not like you or hates you and still being able to have a conversation because I absolutely need to know how you became what you are. How you got that way. <laughs> yeah. How did you get that I way? I absolutely need to know. And, you know, to answer your question, my goal was to never change, to change a mind. I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Right. We as individuals have difficulty with making decisions about going in what direction we want to go in. So for me as an outsider to come and say, I'm a change your mind is I think that's an impossibility. What I can do is present information to you and what I know about you and what you share with me about you get you to hold up your life experience with the information I present to you that may be new or counter to what you believe and allow you to make a decision about how you move forward. That's the best that we can do. But then we also have to walk away from that table and move forward with the power that we have to change the conditions in our lives and hope that we get some allies along the way. Will Green, absolutely immense, wonderful conversation. Uh, one that we are going to have you back on because it's not it's not done yet. Oh yeah, you're gonna bring me on with one of those right. Let's go. <laughs> open open invitation. Okay, yes, let's go. All right, uh, you you heard it here first, uh, and uh, don't think we won't take you up on that. Um, Will Green, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, coming up next, Dave Debo is joined by Sydney Perkins from St. Luke's Mission of Mercy. Stay with us. Are you interested in the opportunity to learn from some of the most talented and energetic professionals in the industry? Buffalo Toronto Public Media is looking for interns for the fall semester for our education and outreach, social media and marketing, radio news, and digital video production teams. Go to wned.org slash careers to learn more. 
you know that WBFO, your NPR station, keeps you up to date on all the news and information you need. But sometimes it's okay to take a break from the news. Listen to our sister station, WNED Classical, at 94.5 in Buffalo or 89.7 in Jamestown. You can stream it on your smart speaker, on the WNED Classical app, or at WNED.org classical. Support for WBFO comes from Ficta, Endel, and Elmer Eye Care, with two offices, two surgery centers, and optical shops in western New York. Learn more online at ficte.com. Hey, we used to love this song. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? We still do, but we used to too. WBFO The Bridge, college radio for adults. Check us out on the WBFO The Bridge app and, of course, wbfo.org slash the bridge. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to wned.org slash vehicles. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. In this segment, we're going to learn more about the east side through one of its residents. Sometimes I think the, the best way, really, to understand a neighborhood is obviously through the people who live there. So with that in mind, Sydney Perkins is here. She's vice president of the board of directors of St. Luke's Mission of Mercy. And we're going to share some of her experiences. I, th I think she has a really interesting story uh, to tell about growing up in one of Buffalo's poorest underperforming neighborhoods. Sydney, thanks for being here. Thank you, Dave, for having me. What is the biggest lesson you got up, uh, get, get, got from growing up yes. um, in this area, a mile from the shooting scene, uh, a neighborhood that we've been talking so much about? Uh, you grew up around people who were hungry. Mm -hmm. You grew up around working poor. You grew up around people who got the least attention. Tell that story. Yes. Okay. So it's interesting, number one, to look back at your own story and try to find, you know, the significance in it. Because, of course, as a person just living it, it's normal and natural life to me. So I grew up um, literally, I, I don't know if the people are listening are familiar with St. Luke's Mission of Mercy, but it's a non-for-profit Roman Catholic uh, mission right in the heart of the east side of Buffalo. And what we do there is take care of all people from, you know, addicted to abused to um, all walks of life. So what? It's Rome, on Walden. It's on, yeah, 325 Walden okay. Avenue. Yeah, so again, like less than uh, two miles away from the Jefferson shooting, right, right. less than even that. So growing up, I've always been a witness of the people in my community and recognizing that our situations are vastly different for the sense that like, okay, yes, I did not grow up quote unquote wealthy, but I knew I was better off than some of the people who were coming to the mission with no shoes, no food, or, you know, physically having been beaten or coming directly out of jail. But you were someone who 
was taken in by the mission. Yes, I was taken in by the mission. I was taken in by my grandmother. My grandmother started the mission uh, August 1st, and I was born August 9th. She's not my blood grandmother. Okay. She's someone who adopted my mom through love and because she had a calling in her heart to give and to help heal God's people. And she was based right in Buffalo. So in that way, you know, it was a part of... It was a part of my community, my family, these people in pain, these people in hurt. I didn't grow up to look at them as like, oh, my gosh, this crazy, you know, beggar. or Oh, my gosh, this crazy woman who gets naked just to ask for two dollars. I grew up calling like my aunt and uncle. And so for me, it is obviously gave me a new view of life when I walk out into the world and just are accepting of people regardless of who they are. But it also um, allow me to see that even even being just a block away gives me a difference and gives me an advantage because it's just um, more support. When you hear all the talk about disinvestment in the community or lack of engagement in the community, yeah. Do you think it springs from the kind of poverty you're talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it springs from the fact that, you know, people, um, it's like a band-aid effect. You know, people will come to the east side, you're uncomfortable. They swing by just for the dingus day or just to go to the Broadway market for the Easter celebration. And, you know, they feel like what they're doing is enough. But, um, you know, the lack of engagement, the lack of coming together and community building is the disservice that is being done. You know, of course, there's a lot of government services and there's a lot of social services, but without community coming together, without Buffalo being Buffalo, like even within a small segment of East Side, it does do a disservice to the people who live within and um, the perspective that people have on the East Side of Buffalo. Let me split those two. You said there's a lack of engagement and a lack of community services. Let's take each one yeah. in turn. Lack of engagement. Yep. Does that mean segregation? Does that mean that uh, um, I go to a suburban steakhouse in East Aurora instead of a rib joint on the east side? Yeah, absolutely. I think it means that. I think it means the fact that, you know, I go to Island Island Art Festival or, you know, the Unwood Art Fest and the Juneteenth was there and there was not the same, you know, effort to go here. You know, for instance, I was blessed to be able to go to different schools to better my education. But I feel like, you know, people in, you know, suburban Buffalo or, you know, non-black or non non white you know, people don't see that going into these areas is also a developmental experience. Like me going to an all-white institution for the sake of just like understanding more fully what my role is in life is just as important as someone going into the east side of community to understand their full purpose as a human being and people as a, hu- as a human race. Talk, though, a little bit about not only proximity but invitation. Absolutely. Um, in order for this scenario to work, in order for it to play out the way you've described— I have to be comfortable going there. Yeah. You have to be comfortable seeing me there. Absolutely. Yeah, so I feel like this uh, this Jefferson shooting has always, and obviously it's definitely opened up the invitation for collaboration, but the one thing about the Black community is we've never not, it's never been a closed invitation. Yeah. Of course, yeah. again, you know, you ride down the streets and because you see a bunch of, you know, you see people who don't look like you, maybe you don't feel invited there, but it's never been a part where, like, you know, a person of any race cannot hop out and move out. Look at, for instance, the East Side community and how we are working with the Middle Eastern community. We live right amongst each yeah. other. And at first, you know, both of these races have been looked poorly upon by Americans, but we are building a community together. And you're right, it is the invitation. So if anybody is looking for the invitation, it is here. Please join us. Please come to church. Please go for a walk. Please look at our shops. Please, you know, eat our food. This is an invitation, but also just come. 
you know, we just go. I am like even at the Galleria Mall, you know, we mm. just have to go. We put ourselves in places just for the sake of buying groceries in, in a safe way or buying going for a walk at Delaware Park where we may not be the only ones. We just go. So this is an open invitation. Please come. We have amazing food, goods, you know, you know, black culture in America. You y'all, we all buy into it. So <laughs> come on down. Uh, at the same time, though, let's explore the idea. You said, hey, you, you go to the Galleria. Yeah. Um, there have been times when you've been the only black person in a room. Absolutely. Many times. Most of my life, weirdly enough. Tell me more. Yeah. So um, because, again, I... Um, I am a black woman from the east side of Buffalo that has been blessed to be afforded the opportunities to go to a private schooling and, you know, just be in spaces where, again, majority of the time, I'm the only black person around. Weirdly enough, I recognize that my first black teacher wasn't until I was in seventh grade. And I only had one black teacher in my entire educational experience. So where, was, where was this? Buffalo schools? Buffalo schools that are all okay. pri- Buffalo private schools, you know, gotcha. all rest in peace closed. But, like, you know, I recognize that that was my space. And it wasn't until my sister actually she mentioned it like when we would go out together she was like Cindy do you know we're the only two black people here and I didn't even notice it until she mentioned it and then once I did you know I started to notice it in my professional space you know when I would go to conferences and I would realize that the 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 language that was being passed like for instance I went to this one example for I was in the career uh services department at Kinesis and we went to a um a presentation on how to be professional and they were saying there was a black men's professional like consortium and the tips that they had were to minimize yourself lower your voice and um you know maintain you know a professional don't stand out basically wow don't stand out you know and it's like and it's unfortunate because in any way in any form of professionalism if you seek to get ahead you have to stand out in some way or another even if it's a risk but it's like you know these are things that i was hearing in these spaces where I was the only black person there. And it is very uncomfortable once I became aware of it. Sure. But it's also something that I do, I really do, I really, really do invite, you know, people who are not black or white individuals to please come and put yourselves in situations that are similar to that. It is uncomfortable, but it's also something that is doable. And people are very welcoming. Going to places that you know are safe, like, you know, for instance, churches, restaurants, like you said, shops. Yeah. You're you're welcome anytime. Before we came on the air here, you told an interesting story that relates to this. About Burger King. Yeah. The idea of invitation. Mm. The idea that somewhere, yeah. either the white person or the black person sort of has to signal a little yes. bit and say, hey, it's okay. This yes. is a safe space. Tell that Burger King story. Yes. So thank you for, thank you for, so this is the first time, like, really enough, again, like, so I was in Burger King, like, the day after, I think the day after the shooting, and this is my local Burger King, right near my mom's house, so, like, right on Broadway, right, like, near the Broadway market, and I was in the restroom, and I remember having, like, for the first time, like, negative, intrusive thoughts that were, like, telling me, like, get out, like, get out, you're not safe, get out as fast mm. as you can, like, move quickly, get out, get out, get out, and I was, like, I knew it wasn't me, but I also couldn't stop the feeling that what if this is telling me to get out? Like, what if something does happen? So when I got out of Burger King, there was a a white man in his truck, you know, right out front. And like any other time, I would have never thought anything of it. But like when I saw him, he just had like, you know, his just regular like resting face. Like he wasn't he looked disgruntled. But like when I went out, I did have anxiety. And I know when he looked at me, he like gave me a little smirk and like, you know, that gave me peace and calm like you know it made me realize okay like this my anxiety that has been building me up to make me rush out of the bathroom to make me rush out of this burger king really fast you know did 
calm when I saw this man who, like, you know, showed signs of being at peace. You know, even mm-hmm. yesterday at the store, I saw a man who was strange. And I was like, he came in looking strange, and I recognized him, and he was standing behind me very quietly. And I just turned around and said, hey, what are you here for? Because I'm like, you know, I would rather communicate than not. And it is scary. And it does cause that invitation that you need to talk to. So in these situations, yeah. both sides have to shoot each other a wink and say, hey, it's okay. Yes, we do. And that's exactly, you're right. Thank you for saying, I think this is an invitation. So for both of us, me, as my experiences as a white, as a black girl going into white spaces, I've always tried to make myself comfortable. I've always tried to be smiling. I've always tried to, you know, be listening. And that's just a part of my personality. But on the other side, I think that our white uh, brothers and sisters, when they come into these spaces that are all black, you know, let people know that not you're not just here to serve and to save, you know, you're here to enjoy and you're here to, you know, experience. You know, and that's basically it. I feel like that's the point. Enjoy an experience and make it clear your intention is to just, you know, be a part of and not an observer. You grew up at St. Luke's Mission of Mercy, so it's really yep. no surprise that your LinkedIn page includes scripture. Yes. Uh, I was not given the spirit of fear, Amen. but of power, love, and a sound mind. Amen. That kind of sums it up. Amen. Thank you for saying that. And I think that's the truth for all of us. Like, And that's where, you know, that's where my reaction to this shooting has come. Like, just as hard as the devil clearly tried to make this message so strong with this man killing black people and making it specific and direct to kill innocent people, there's a message that's also to be taken from that, that we will not stand for this. The people who are up in arms, the fact that the whole world is like, this is wrong, it shows the exact opposite. And that's where I come from. Like, when I do feel fearful I recognize this isn't from me and it's not for my good when I go into a situation and I feel like there that's why I communicate that's why I speak to people and that's where this invitation is coming fear is of the devil and if you feel it it's right it's necessary in this moment but recognize that you have the power to overcome it Sydney Perkins is with us she's vice president of the board of directors at St. Luke's Mission of Mercy she grew up there she has an interesting story to tell about living in that community growing in that community and engaging in that committee. We've been talking a little bit about the engagement part, but earlier you also spoke of the idea of community services. Yeah. It's no secret, especially to anyone who's listened to these programs, that there has been a lack of investment yeah. in the areas around the shooting. Right. Address that. You've talked a little bit about how the races can engage more, and that's right. cool. Right. But what what's the other side of that equation? How do How do we invest more? Is it just a matter of, um, me, instead of going to the Galleria Mall to buy my party supplies, getting them from a store on Jefferson? Oh, that's a great question. So I feel like, number one, the fact that community engagement can be done in many ways, and I think it has to, the answer has to come from what's inside of you. What sparks you? You know, what do you like to do? I know, like, for instance, slow roll. Slow roll is a great opportunity for you to get on your bike and to ride through all of Buffalo at your own pace and to look at it through your own eyes in spaces that you might not always go. So I feel like, you know, when you are going into community engagement, and yes, it can be through check, yes, it can be through community service or through friendship, but it's something that is most important and most done well when it's something that's authentic to you so if you like to cook if you like to read if you like to dance if you like to sing if you like to go for a walk you know make take it take the space most of us work in downtown buffalo or some type some part through it you know so find something that's natural to you if you're a worshiper join a service if you're you know there's so many ways to get involved and to get connected and it doesn't have to be always some grand thing like you know i'm gonna run this marathon or i'm gonna you know raise all this money and send a check or do 12 hours of community service what do you like to do and i guarantee you you will find it in any community in buffalo but right now you know if you would take the time to enjoy it within the black community in buffalo this is your this is your time 
This community is really a part of your heart, isn't it? It is, yes. Talk about that. Oh, my God. What, what is there? What does it mean to you? What's your, what's your favorite, most emotional, amazing part of the East Side? Oh, my goodness. Thank you for this question. Uh, she was ready for this one, it's folks. So it's actually, I, I have, you know what's funny is when I drove up here, I was thinking, like, not only am I Buffalo born and raised, but to me, I'm Buffalo baptized. Okay. So I'm, I'm meant to be in this community and I was gifted to this community by God. So this community, the east side of Buffalo, to me, really is a light on a hill. It's a light on a hill. Buffalo has been, quote, unquote, the city of good neighbors. Yeah. This this terrible incident has, you know, put us on a pedestal to see if we can truly heal ourselves and heal each other. But the most beautiful thing about the east side to me is it's people who live their life unashamed, period. You know, if people are, if a person is an addict, you see that. If a person is a single mother, you see that. If a person is, uh, you know, raising an urban farm, you see, like, people live their lives out loud. Like, you know, and that's what I appreciate. I appreciate looking at a person and knowing them for who they are. I appreciate a person saying, I need $5. And yes, it might be for Coke, but you also know I might need it for, you know, whatever, you know? So that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, I love that about the East Side because people are free to hurt People are free to heal. People are free to heal and then go back backwards. And that's authenticity. And I feel like that's where God is working in the in the honesty. We've had uh, poet laureate Jillian Hainsworth on the program here. And she oftentimes in, in uh, presentations and in the interview here talks about hashtags, Ooh. how everyone's saying, oh, Buffalo strong. Right. And she says, no, <laughs> Buffalo strong is not it. Right. Buffalo honest. Ooh. Is, is the thing. Buffalo Honest. Hashtag Buffalo, Buffalo honest. honest. Sounds exactly like what you were just I saying. I love that. Buffalo is so true. And I feel like that that's where we need to go. Like if people, uh, there's a show, M. Night Shyamalan, I forgot it was, but it was like the black box where people like lived away and they put all their secrets in this black box. And I feel like that's America now where people like feel like they're all in, the, in invited into this dream and like you put your things away in this black box and like we all have a black box, but like don't open it, don't show it. But like that's, you don't grow. There's no health. There's no healing there. Like Buffalo Honest, like I look at my and be like, okay, yes, I'm a black girl in this black community that is hurting now and there's an opportunity for me to be a part of this healing. And if you are as a white person or anywhere, you look at yourself and you're like, what's in me? What's in me and what can I give? What can I show? And even sharing it amongst ourselves, amongst our families. Like how much, how often can we be honest with our families? How often, you know? You've talked a lot about personal interaction, Mm -hmm. engagement with the community. Is there a broader policy problem here that needs to be addressed? What does the East Side need, maybe from City Hall or from Washington or from Albany? I think number one is transportation. Like the bus, the bus route goes right directly in one line from one to another. You see the free, the free bus routes are directly in one line to one specific place that keeps people in one specific place. Like, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be done to just make sure people have access to other things. Like, you know, my uncle, he drives a Aries van. He's, those are the services that get people to their medical, you know, situations if they don't have the transportation. I feel like if Buffalo could invest and our people can invest and even if it's a ride sharing you know if you're a mom and you have a minivan or if you're a person you got that friend from work that you don't need to ride you know just making the roads whether it be physical bus roads and bus routes or invitation specific or facebook like that specifically cross paths intentionally you should be able to get a bus that goes to williamsville all the way to downtown buffalo that someone can work at the wegmans down there and be a part of you know just making those roads to connection a lot has been ta- uh, said about how Buffalo is obviously 
a segregated community. Yeah. Black people are 13% of the population in Erie County, but 37% of the city of Buffalo. Yeah. And then within the city of Buffalo, 85% of black people live east of Main Street. Yeah. Um, is this lack of transportation a way, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. If, right. you, if, if you disagree with please, me, please yeah, do. Is this lack of transportation a way of enforcing and creating even more segregation? Or is it just, uh, I don't know, what is it? It's absolutely, it's a piece of it. It's a piece okay. of it. And I think it's also the access to education. It's the access to opportunities. It's the access to thinking of it. For instance, even just this example, I was at a, over in South Buffalo grabbing the coffee at the 7-Eleven. I heard the girl at the register say, I've never been over the hill. Like, not like the mm. bridge. She's never been over that hill. All right. And that was like, what? Like, I just came here for a rehearsal. And she's never been over the hill. And then another thought. My friend, he loves to go snowboarding. I have never, you know, gone snowboarding, but I would go if invited. But I'm like, if you are someone, like, who isn't me, who's, like, used to trying to go out, used to trying new things, would you even think that you could even accept that invitation? Would you even think that, you know, someone was talking about snowboarding, that you even can continue to listen to that thought? So it's like the fact, the barriers. There's so many barriers to entry. There's so many barriers, whether it be, you know, education, whether it be infrastructure, whether it be socioeconomic class, whether it be parenthood there's so many things that are really set up to mess people up but it's like you know i'm a clear example the pure snow hill is 35 miles away how the how are you going to get there exactly like okay. i'm but i'm pure example of the fact that it can be done even if it's not through your own flesh and blood like my mom and dad did not have the means personally to be able to provide me with the opportunities that i was afforded but god inspired people who have the means and who have the heart and who have the room to share push back then against the narrative um, and maybe it's even the racist narrative that says um, people aren't willing to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah, that's a lie. That's a lie. So, for instance, you know, think about I love scriptures. Think about the man. Think about any of the people who needed a miracle. Any of them. You know, the woman with the blood, the Lazarus, all these people, if they could have done it themselves, don't you think they would? If, I mean, people, like, do you think, and this is the thing, it's like, you know, I was always saying, I, even traveling, you know, I look at my dog, and I'm like, my dog is so useless. He's so, <laughs> you know, he can't he can't do anything. Like, you know, he just loves and, like, but the thing is that for him, in order to be a dog, he has to be a happy beggar. He has to be so happy with, like, like happy to just, like, wait for a treat, happy with these things, and that's the, that's the nature of a dog. We're talking about people here, people who... You know, if they wanted to beg, I don't I don't think anybody wants that life. I don't think anybody wants to be cold. I don't think anybody wants not to look at their children and know that they have less than. These are things that are not natural to the human form, aren't natural to the human desire, and are not natural to the American dream or what we're being like it's told a success. So if people could, they would. There's not just it's not just one thing, oh, if you would just get a job, or if you would just have used your unemployment checks a little wiser, or if you would just go and get yourself like there's so many things that stop people from taking the next step. And it just only comes from looking at their personal situation, their personal situation. One of the things you said earlier is that you were on the way to a rehearsal. Yeah. You're, you're a musician. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Talk a little bit about this. I know you've sung uh, the anthem at the Bills and the yes, Sabres. Yes. You have a project where you would like to see something similar to We Are the World. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Artists coming together 
to sing in some way about Buffalo. Tell me more. Oh, Dave, thank you so much for asking me. Yes, this, okay, I have the gift of music. That's what I have to share. If you have the gift of music, if you have the gift of art, if you have the gift of songwriting, I want us all to come together. I wrote a song called Rise Up, and I'm inviting people. You've already got the song. I already got the song, but I want input. Okay. You know, I want us to come together. That's the whole thing. Like, just like Buffalo, we have a plan, but we need the community to come in and get some input. So I have this song. I want people to come together. If this is your gift to share of music and you're willing to just let it out, there's a date on Monday. We're going to have three different workshops. We workshop this song. We're going to record it on the 8th or 9th, and we're going to have a music video released by July 31st. And this music video will be all of us, all of our skills put together that will then be released on all of our channels. So it's not just going to come from me. Everybody will have access to it. And it will be asked that they ask for donations to whatever charity in the neighborhood that they would like to see donations go to. So I, th this is a my way of giving my gift in an easy way. I love to sing. Got the song already written. Been wanting to do this forever. Inviting people. And this is exactly what anybody can do. You love to cook? Bring your friends, cook together, and drop the food off at St. Luke's. Or bring your friends and drive around the city of Buffalo offering free sandwiches. Like, you use what you love to do, and you use what you're called to do to make a difference. But if you love to sing, you can go to my Facebook. at sydneyperkins.com. I posted the event. It's called Rise Up. All right, slowly now. Sydney, you spell S. S-Y-D. N-I-E Perkins Perkins and it's on my Facebook and the event is called Rise Up Calling Buffalo so if you are interested in joining and singing this song you know please uh, register there it'll be a great great experience for all of Buffalo to come together and if you're there for one hour two hours we would just love to have you and then just, just let's give let's throw love as hard as people throw hate throw rocks of love how many artists do you have already how many do you want yeah so right now I have about five I got like the recording artists I got me I got three other girls so Joshua Vacanti from um you know from America's Got Talent from American Idol I got Regine Denise Oliver I got um a couple like I have this guy um Alan Duzo from Starfield Studios he's recorded many artists and recorded most of my two albums I have um Christian who is a beautiful videographer he's going to do this amazing music video for us and I'm asking for I would love to have my dream number would be 20 but if we can get 100 I don't care like whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do well I just want people to be able to if their gift is music and they're looking for something to do here's an invitation this is an invitation talk about invitations here's one all right you know i i can't not have you in a room with a microphone when you talk about a song oh, Lord. And yeah. sing something? Yeah, please. Okay. Sing, sing the song you're talking about. Sing uh, uh, Rise Up, Calling Buffalo. Okay, I would. the reason I would, I cannot sing something else because the thing is with Rise Up, it has a it has a harmony to it. Like there's right. going to have to be a... I'm not going to do the harmony. Okay, Forgive no me. worries. So I'll sing something real quick. I'll sing. I can maybe do keyboards, but I can't sing. You can? to No, I well, cannot sing. Can you play? Uh, yeah, I'll call you, Dave. We oh. might need you in a music video, okay? Um, All right. So I'll here be it is. in the background. I love you, Laura. I'll do it real quick. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound. In your ear. There we go. Wow. That's the prayer. And that's what we all doing. Let's pray and thank you for this opportunity. And let's I, that's the that's the point for me is this is a goal to throw rocks of love just as hard as people throw rocks of hate. All right. And and they can do that, obviously, like you said, through your Facebook page, Sydney Perkins. Yep. S Y 
Uh, no, S D. No, S Y D. There we go. And I I E Perkins. Yes, exactly. Tell me a little bit more if people want to find out more. Uh, we're talking about community assets here. Yes. How do they get in touch with St. Luke's? If you can go to stlukesmissionofmercy.org, you can go to St. Luke's Mission of Mercy on Facebook or on Instagram. And um, you can also just stop right in. We are open literally 24-7. You can stop by, drop off food. You can drop off donations. Our phone number is 716 894 Four four seven six. Okay, say it again so people can write it down. Eight nine four 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 seven six. And do what's natural to you. Come on and bring your gifts. We are welcoming them, and this is an invitation. If you were waiting for an invitation to do something, you are invited officially. Tremendous. Sydney, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Sydney Perkins, Vice President of the Board of Directors of St. Luke's Mission of Mercy and a singer. You've probably heard her at the Bills game, Sabres games, doing the anthem. Uh, She's trying to pull together a group of people to to a We Are the World of Buffalo yeah. on the east side. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dave. Tomorrow on the program, we will have Franchelle Parker from Open Buffalo and Jolanda Hill from Colored Girls Bike 2. That's her promise to you. We will be here with more conversation here at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>